Hey guys, I'm excited today. I have my friend Josiah with me again. Um, Josiah again will uh, be breaking another record in my podcast. And uh, the the first record was the longest podcast episode. <laughs> and then this record is uh, being back the quickest. So um, congrats on that. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah. Hey. Um, so, um, like Kendall said, my name is Josiah. Um, Kendall and I met through Instagram, um, and uh, he was so gracious to have me on his podcast. Um, it was it was only a few weeks ago at this point to talk pretty much about my story. So, um, if you go back and listen to that episode, um, I believe it was episode thirty three. Um, that is my background, my story. It kind of gets into. Um, how I was raised, um, religiously and, and psychologically and stuff like that. And, um, you know, what, what we're going to get into tonight is very, um, it's along the same lines, except it's less of a personal story. Um, and you're going to kind of see and get to get to probe, um, my psyche and see, um, what happened when I started to deconstruct and, and discover who, um, God really is and, and what this religion of Christianity is all about. Um, and just to, you know, disclosure, um, full disclosure is going to, is going to happen tonight. And I think that, um, what we're going to see is that not everything we, we were told and everything we read is necessarily, um, exactly how it happened. And I'm not claiming to know exactly how it happened. Um, but I think it's important to ask those questions. Um, yeah. So Kendall, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. Yeah. So tonight, um, we're going to be undertaking the task of kind of looking at the old Testament and seeing where, um, it just looks kind of inconsistent uh, about who God is, um, throughout the old Testament and, uh, especially into the new Testament and going into some, uh, books we've read and some possible, alternate um ideas of who god was and kind of some uh rewriting and uh re-narratizing of the old testament god so um this it, it was really intriguing when i when i read the book um is uh, paul wallace escaping eden eden is the is a book i read i, I think Josiah has read a couple so uh josiah's prepared some notes and uh yeah yeah. Thanks for the intro. Um, so, so yeah, so like Kendall said, um, the, the book that kind of, um, well, not really kind of the book that, that really sent me on this journey, um, is, is the author, his name is Paul Wallace. Um, he's got a really, um, popular YouTube channel now that, um, kind of blew up in the last year or so. Cause I think a lot of people are, um, finding this information, um, because a lot of people are deconstructing right now. You know, we're, we're talking about the Christian faith. Um, we're talking about a religion that is as old as time, you know, a, according to the Bible, at least. And um, I think um, what Paul Wallace did in the book, the, the, the last book of this series is probably the, um, the most well-rounded. It's called um, The Eating Conspiracy. Um, and in that, um, Paul breaks down... Um, the, the origins of, of paleo contact, which is um, a quick definition of that is basically the belief that our oldest ancestors were contacted by an intelligent non-human species um, and that non-human species had a major influence on um, the development of culture, civilization, religion, technology, things of that nature. Um, so 
how did I get into this book? How did I get onto this journey? Um, if you want the whole story, go back to the the first podcast I was on. Um, but where the, the crux of this is, is after leaving a um, joining, unfortunately, um, and then leaving a church that we, um, my, my family and I discovered um, was a cult. Um, I, when we, when we exited that, that cult, um, I spent some time in solitude um, and kind of shut myself in to really discover and to dive into really, really didn't know what I was doing, if I'm being honest, but I ended up diving into, um, the, the origins of this religion, of this faith that I had been raised in, um, and through just doing some research and, and, you know, as a, as a non-scholar, just, just really just doing lay research. Um, I came upon some information that, um, in mostly in the Gnostic texts, um, that this Yahweh figure who is widely accepted and widely believed, at least here in the West, um, as the father of Jesus, as the, the creator God, the, when we say the word God, um, most people, most Christians would say that is Yahweh, um, that his personal name is Yahweh. Um, I no longer believe that. And um, some research and this book and then some personal um, experiences have, have led me to that belief. Um, so that's kind of the background on, on what led me to discover this book on what led me to dive into this topic. This wasn't just out of a vacuum. One day I woke up and wanted to, you know, um, figure out who God is. Um, this, this came out of very, um, uh, emotional, sensitive, um, really traumatic. If I'm being honest at a traumatic time in my life where, um, I was on the verge of, of either, you know, um, believing none of this, right. And, and, and believing that there's none of this is real and it's just completely made up or, or there has to be some truth in here. And I'm of the belief that there is absolutely good news. And if you hang on through, um, through this podcast, you're going to, um, you're going to hear the really good news at the end. It's going to sound like I'm painting a really negative picture. Um, but if you hang in there, there's going to be some really good news at the end. Um, so, um, Kendall, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, no, that that's great. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, the often, you know, our questions and kind of us realizing that we had preconceived ideas or, or haven't really thought about certain things, um, often comes at pivotal hard times in our lives. And, um, yeah, I'll, I kind of, uh, I'm glad you brought that up about your personal journey. Cause, um, for me, uh, so after, um, college, I went to this Christian apologetic camp called summit. And one of the speakers there was, uh, Paul Copen and his topic was, um, about God of the old Testament. And did he like commit genocide and stuff like that? And, um, you know, he had his arguments and, uh, at the time I thought that they were pretty good. I hadn't really thought about it too much in the past, <laughs> you know, again, um, but then I went off to grad school and I took a class called Bible's literature and, um, you know, analyzing the Bible from these different genres and authors and different stuff like that. And, um, really taking a more critical and, um, scholarly view rather than like coming at, coming at it as a Christian necessarily. Um, and I think, I think I wrote a paper actually, um, cause I read 1984. And, uh, so I was kind of using that as a lens. And so I was, was like, 
was God a totalitarian dictator in the Old Testament? And that was my paper. And I defended him in that paper, but um, looking back, it was very circular reasoning. Um, and I didn't really have good arguments. And um, it was just like, well, God is just or God is love, so he can't be this way. So, <laughs> And now I'm just like, man, I, I don't think I really... Uh, did a good job there, but you know, that's, that's what I had to go off of based on the tradition I was taught. Um, so, uh, yeah, after my awakening, I, I was very, felt very disconnected from God for a while. Um, because this image of God in the Old Testament didn't fit. And so it took a long time later to come back and, um, books like, uh, books that Paul um, Wallace wrote, uh, books like that helped me understand things. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. No, I, and I love that. Thank you for sharing. And I think what really stood out to me about what you said was, um, you know, in that paper that you wrote that you used circular reasoning and, 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 you know, looking back that, that you probably wouldn't have said the same thing now. And I think, you know, being raised in a, in a religious environment. And, you know, it really is psychological conditioning. You know, I, I, you know, our parents, whoever raised us, whoever raised us in that environment, I'm sure they don't see it that way. And it wasn't intentional and it's not a malicious thing. However, you know, it's, it's nature and nurture, right? That, that nurture part that you're raised in that, that has a, an effect on you. Um, so, with that said, I think, you know, I would, I would say the same thing. I, maybe I didn't write a paper about it, but I've defended, um, this Yahweh figure, um, and this, you know, transcendent, you know, that that's what we believed at least that this, these old Testament stories are stories of a transcendent being the transcendent God, um, you know, the creator God and, and, you know, which is a good segue because really the, the, um, big question that the book and I guess really that this this conversation that we're having tonight is I'm hoping will answer for some people like it answered for me is um, is the Bible and the Old Testament specifically when I say the Bible, the Old Testament, is it a book about God? And when I say God, I mean, source God. Um, is it the creator God, the loving God, the, the God that, um, you know, Apostle Paul identified as that in which we all live and move and have our being? Um, is the Old Testament a story about that God or is it potentially something else? Um, so with that said, um, I am not I want to give a disclaimer. I am not saying that we don't need the Old Testament, um, that it shouldn't be read, that it's dangerous or, or it's harmful or that for, for whatever reason, you know, we, we don't need it anymore. I actually think the opposite. Um, I would say that it's 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 crucial um, to know our history. And if you identify as a Christian or, or a Christian who's in deconstruction or just, you know, um, someone who's seeking, um, you know, esoteric knowledge, um, you're, you're, you're going to be presented with this information and it's important to know what we're reading. So, um, me personally, um, I'm at the point now that I can read the old Testament, you know, uh, Plato or, or Carl Jung or the Vedas. And, um, I can find this cosmic Christ. That's kind of what, um, what I, I, the language that I use to describe the, um, the light, the good, the, the truth that kind of hides behind the veil of, um, the old, um, the old Testament. So, um, I can find the cosmic Christ there. Um, cause my personal belief is that once you see the Christ, 
Um, meaning I think once you, once you ascend that Christ consciousness within your own being, you, you see it everywhere and you, you can see it in the grocery store or you can see it in the old Testament. It's just, it's ever present. Um, so, um, I do believe though, that if we don't know what we're reading, as far as the old Testament goes, if we believe we're reading stories about God, the transcendent God, the creator of the universe, um, I do think it is a breeding ground for deception. Um, confusion and potentially even mental illness, um, which I, I've, I've been a witness to. Um, so I feel strongly about this. Um, and, and so did Paul. So did the apostle Paul. Um, I'm going to quote Paul here at um, right, right now, pretty much um, in second Corinthians three, um, Paul makes a point when he's, he's talking about the old Testament and he's referencing um, and it's, and it's important to set the scene here. Paul is talking to um you know, these newly, um, this new, this new religion of Christianity where people are believing in this Jesus and, and they're having these new experiences. So the new Testament at this point doesn't exist. People don't have a new Testament. They have, they're getting letters from their apostle. Um, and that's pretty much all they have. They're going off of his words. So he says, um, this in second Corinthians three, I'm going to read it. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, Moses being the Torah, the old Testament, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. Um, so, with that said, I'm, I'm probably going to stop there and let you chime in. If you have something to say about that, um, go for it. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I think another, obviously, person to look at is Jesus and, um, you know, reading some books about Jesus and how he talked about the Old Testament. And sometimes he would say, um, you know, talk about something and he would reaffirm that belief from the Old Testament. Sometimes he would even call for a greater understanding or even more um, let's do even better than what this is saying. Uh, let's look to the inner, to the heart. Um, and sometimes he would say, you've heard it said, but I say, and he would change it. So we see that Jesus, um, you know, he, he found truth in the old Testament. And sometimes I think he found that it was lacking and he improved upon it. So we can see that uh, it wasn't just Jesus be like, the Old Testament is perfect and just going to leave it as is. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's important to know that, you know, if we if we just read these stories, again, the stories of the Old Testament without a religious lens, which is hard to do. Um, it's, it's been hard for me to do in the past. Um, but if we can really um, try to focus and, and read these without a religious lens, um, without doing the spiritual gymnastics um, to try to justify or rationalize um, what I, I believe is psychopathic behavior of this deity that is going to read in our Bibles and most Bibles in the New King James, the King James, you know, any real mainstream um, translation, the word is going to be Lord and God. Um, however, uh, a quick um, check of the concordance, um, which you can do on Google. You look up what that word is, and 9.9 .9 times out of 10, it's going to be the proper name for God, Yahweh. 
um, Y-H-W-H. So um, Lord and God, um, those words have been superimposed um, over the original, which was Yahweh. Um, so again, it, that it's important to, to understand that because the mind is being trained when it reads these verses, when it says, and God slaughtered whatever and and the fear the lord and whatever it is um we 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 read that and we say well why like you said about your paper what why would we question this because this is god you know his ways are higher than our ways and he's transcendent and all-knowing and there must be something you know my tiny human brain just can't understand here so we're gonna you know just be okay with it um however when we understand we're talking about Yahweh, who I'm going to um, hopefully prove that is, is one of various um, gods called Elohim. Um, and, and we're not talking about the Supreme being. We're not talking about source God. So when you read it that way, um, it, it reads differently. It reads about one figure, um, not the, the, the source God. So, um, and, and also, you know, when we, when we look at this, you know, there's, there's a few people, um, two people in the, in the new Testament. So we have the apostle, apostle Paul, and we have the apostle John who, um, summed up what they meant by God. Very, um, um, very potently, I believe. And I quoted it before with the apostle Paul, when he's on Mars Hill, he says, you know, by God, I mean that in, in whom we all live and move and have our being. So we're talking about a source of the cosmos. And the Apostle John goes um, as far to just say, um, God is love, right? God is love. Um, and if you abide in love, you abide in God. There's no disclaimer on that. There's no, you know, it's just love, right? So um, so if that's the God we're, we're supposed to be seeing in the Old Testament, why are we not seeing that, right? Um, so the the um i guess the the place where the book you know paul wallace's book the eden conspiracy where this where this kind of starts is he lays out evidence that points to um the origin stories um and the conquests of israel being um they're being their stories of paleo contact um so that's kind of how he lays it out he makes these connections um through other other ancient civilizations um that all these different civilizations um, have accounts of early alien contact. Yes. Um, who is Paul Wallace for, for our listeners? A little bit Sorry, of background. Yeah. Paul Wallace, yeah um, Paul Wallace, he's the author of this book. His background, he was a, um, a minister um, in the Episcopalian church. So the Anglican in the, um, I, I believe he's, he lives in Australia now. I think his background is British, um, but he, is um, he was a minister for over 30 years um, in the Episcopalian here in the West. It was the Anglican in the East Church. Um, he, he's a brilliant scholar, and, and he's got years of ministry um, where he actually taught these Yahweh stories as God stories. Um, and through an injury that he sustained um, that actually put him basically, um, you know, kind of kind of put him up in the house for a little bit, he came to these um conclusions and, and realizations, um, through his own, you know, solitude journey. Um, so that's, yeah, so that's the, the author of the book that we're talking about. Um, so in the book, um, that he wrote after connecting the dots between the, the vast array of these paleo contact stories in early civilization. So we're talking, you know, ancient Sumeria. So we have the story of Enki and Enyal in the, in the, you know, the, um, not the Genesis, but their Genesis, the, the ancient Sumerian stories, um, 
he connects the dots from all these different cultures. And I'm not, I'm not going to get into the weeds of that because I think what we really want to dive into tonight is more of the, the, what led this Christian faith to believe that Yahweh is God and what does that, what does that do to, to the faith? Um, yep. Yeah. I just want to say real quick that, uh, Sumerian, um, legends of, 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 of the beginning of the universe, um, Inky and then Lil, uh, and some others, uh, were actually predating the, um, Jewish, uh, myth narrative. Um, and so Genesis is kind of, um, their own flavor or take on things in response to some of these earlier, um, myths. Right. Yeah, no, totally. And that's, um, yeah. And, and it's an important, it's an important detail to know that, you know, the, the, um, Bible's Genesis, you know, the, the Genesis of the Israelites, um, those stories come much later. And, and most people know that there's, um, you know, the flood narrative is cross-cultural. Most people know, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh and, you know, there's, there's many flood narratives, um, which again, you know, you have to ask the question since we're talking about the flood, why would a loving God, um, this is a really obvious question, but why would a loving God destroy the world? And I, I, I know the Bible says, because, you know, all of man's thoughts were wicked and all of their deeds were evil and, you know, okay, that's, that doesn't sound, you know, it just doesn't sound like love. So again, if you just read it at face value, um, it's probably not a good reason because you could, right. Yeah. Go ahead. And, and two, he says, you know, Noah was an upright man and stuff like that. But, uh, we can see pretty soon after gets off the ark, he's acting in very not great ways. So it's like, how much good did the flood even do? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And if, and my, you know, side note, my personal opinion, if, if, and again, you know, a lot of these stories, too, this is another disclaimer, I guess we, we probably should have given first. You know, I'm not here to um, try to prove if these stories are factually true, if they're history or not. I don't know. And and truly, no one who's walking the earth right now knows. Um, so they could be myths and archetypes, or they could be factually true. Um, so I, I'm, I'm probably taking the approach tonight that they are true. I'm going to make that assumption just to kind of lay out the picture that they are, in fact, true. Um, and if it is true that everybody in the earth was destroyed except for Noah, um, well, then that that actually appears to be more of a um, let me start fresh with this one family and brainwash them and make them loyal Yahweh's. Right. Um, it actually it actually reads more of that then, hey, let me let me save. You know, I mean, he, he kind of says it. He says, you know, he wants to save a remnant for himself. Um, well, that, that you know, I mean, really, if you kind of read through the camouflage there, that's it's pretty, pretty clear what's happening. Um, not here to make that point. That's just kind of a, a side note. Um, so, again, you know, coming back to what one of the things we said earlier, which would be um, most mainstream Christians, Western Christians, if you ask them, what the personal name of God is, they would say Yahweh or Jehovah, which is they're, they're interchangeable in the Bible. Um, and um, what, what I would say is that um, Yahweh does happen to be, I believe Yahweh is the father of the Israelites. I believe it's safe to say that Yahweh is the father of, of the Israelites. However, um, not the father of, of creation, not the father of mankind. So um that's kind of the approach that, that I'm going to take. And I, and I believe there's some, um, there's going to be some verses. Um, we're going to read a lot of verses tonight and, um, just bear with me there. But, um, 
one of the things I also wanted to add here was that um, there's a few there's a few early um, accounts of people who um, maybe were were um, they were popular and notorious for different reasons. So um, that that had these opinions about Yahweh as well. So um, one of them would be um, the the famous heretic Origin of Alexandria. Um, so he had something to say about the God of the Old Testament. This is a quote. Um, and he says, but they believe in the, they would be for context that they is, is those, um, Christians, these, these early Christians, they believe such things about him, the old Testament God that would not be believed of even the most savage and unjust human being end quote. Um, so that's origin of Alexandria who was labeled a heretic for that and being a universalist. Um, he believed that even demons were going to be purified by God in the end. So, um, they didn't like that very much. Um, Marcion had, had something to say about this as well. So um, I, I'm not going to give a, a long history on who Marcion is. However, if you, if you just Google him and Marcionites and Marcionism, um, it's kind of like a, a subsect of Gnostic Christianity um, that was eventually suppressed. Um, so there's a book um, called Know the Heretics. It's a, it's a cool little book that goes into... Um, into the stories of, I think it's like 14 different really famous heretics um, that are related to the Christian faith. Um, and this is what the book Know the Heretics has to say about Marcion. So according to Marcion, the God of the Old Testament was a wrathful, vengeful deity who wanted to keep humankind subject to himself, while Christ was sent by the real supreme God to reintroduce the religion of love and peace. Eventually, his influence stretched all around the Mediterranean, and it lasted for a couple of centuries until the first Christian emperor suppressed Marcionism. Um, so off the bat, I'm, I'm kind of just laying some groundwork here and saying that, one, um, this isn't a new um, thought. This is actually a pretty old belief um, that the God that's laid out in the Old Testament was not um, a benevolent uh, creator God that we thought he was. Um, there's also another really interesting um, fact that um, in addition to Origen and Marcion, in 2008, um, Pope Benedict, um, he dispatched an order banning the Catholic Church to, use, to, to no longer use the name Yahweh um, as hmm. the name of God. The reasoning he, and this is, you can verify this, and the reasoning he gave, he stated this, um, that it was it was because it is not a Christian name for God. Um, and there was, there wasn't, I couldn't find much more detail about that. Uh, of course you can, you know, you can infer what that means. Um, but yeah, so, so we have, again, I'm not, I'm not going to say that, you know, the Catholic church Marcion or, or origin are my basis for this, this, you know, this argument here. But, um, you know, I think we're, we're, we are in some good company to believe that this is not a new thought and this isn't just, you know, Josiah making something up or Paul Wallace making something up out of thin air. Right. Um, do you have anything you wanted to say about that? Um, yeah, that, that's great. Um, I guess one, I'll just refer real quick, um, to my episode, um, with, uh, Darren King on ETs and how we talked about how so many different cultures and religions, um, actually mention or talk about, um, ETs or higher beings, um, angels, demons, all this stuff. And so, um, I'll just say for myself, uh, 
in my um, spiritual journey, I was reading about these esoteric groups that, and in the East and like Hinduism, Buddhism, and meditations, how they had these experiences and realizations about these different dimensions, um, whether it's like etheric, astral, causal, celestial, all these different things. Um, and I was also reading about quantum physics and string theory and different dimensions. And I kind of had this like dualistic split really where I was like, okay, there's levels of heaven and then there's different dimensions that are, that are not heaven. And then it just hit me that this is the same thing. And so once that hit, that kind of also helped me understand about is it's, the spiritual beings are just on different levels. And if they're a high enough level, Oh, the, then they're angels and they're low level, they're demons. And there's in between levels where you could say they're like ETs. Um, so it's, uh, it's really, really fascinating, I guess. Yeah, no, totally. And I, you know, I came upon, um, I think the same information and it was uh, the, the Gnostics. The Gnostics go into this a lot, and that was kind of the last, the last people group I was going to bring up um, to say, "Hey, listen, there's others who who believe this." Um, now, I don't, I don't disclaimer, I don't um, prescribe to all the Gnostic teachings by any means. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot that they, um, in my opinion, they get wrong, and they maybe go too far, and it's a little too dualistic for me. Um, However, I, I do find some some of it resonates when it comes to this Yahweh stuff, and and um, you know they they believe in the divine spark, which is the Christ, and you know I, I love that language. I find it really helpful. Um, so let's keep going here. Um, I'm going to give a little um, linguistic disclaimer here. So when I'm reading, I'm going to read a lot of passages tonight to paint a picture of this Yahweh figure. Um, if you were raised in the church, they're going to be familiar verses to you. Um, but I hope that that you can um, you can you can see them and hopefully in a in a fresh light and see that this is um, we don't have to make excuses and rationalize um, genocide and evil and abuse really. Um, so. When I when I read these passages where it says Lord or God, I'm going to use the word Yahweh. Um, I do this personally when I read the Bible now in order to um, really create a new neural pathway in my brain to understand that these are not God stories. These are Yahweh stories. Um, so and, and linguistically, it's actually more accurate anyway, because this is, again, if you just do a, a quick search in the concordance, the word God, Lord, in 9.9 times out of 10, um, it's, it's actually Yahweh, um, which is a singular being. So um, in addition to that, there's another word um, that I want to um, I want to define and kind of paint a more modern picture of. It's the word Elohim, um, Elohim. Uh, comes up in the Bible many times, um, and there's there's no argument, um, scholarly, no argument in the academic community that the word Elohim is not a plural word. It is plural every single time. It's masculine plural. So when we when we read the word Elohim, it speaks of multiple gods, multiple deities. Um, the word is actually powerful ones. Um, there's there's a few there's a few different translations you can you can find if you just Google this or go into the concordance, but one of the translations it can be um, literally translated to sky council or sky army. Um, we would hear the word heavenly host 
Um, however, when you hear that word, most people are going to picture, you know, um, really kind of flowy angels in white with pretty wings. And it's kind of like, you know, blowing trumpets and that's the heavenly host. Um, however, behaviorally, if you look at the behavior of the heavenly host, um, they, they actually read more as a sky army, um, and a sky council heavenly. We're using the word sky, um, and host, you know, army. Um, so Elohim Yahweh, these are two words that, that you're going to hear. Um, let's see. Okay. So we're going to look at, um, our first, um, passage tonight in Deuteronomy 32, seven through 10. Um, so this is going to paint a picture. I'm going to, I'm kind of just going to summarize it and then I will read it. Um, it's going to paint a picture of Yahweh being assigned Israel, um, as his quote unquote portion. Um, and he's going to be assigned the desert and the wilderness as his home basically for these people. Um, he's being assigned to this by, um, what a lot of the Bibles will say this name, El Elyon. That's going to be a, a, a name that again, I think trips a lot of people up because they hear, you know, God, Lord, Elohim, Yahweh, whatever. And then there's this El Elyon character, which translates to the most high of the Elohim, the most high of the sky council. Um, and this El Elyon is going to be, um, assigning Yahweh a, um, Jacob, Jacob, meaning, um, Israel as his inheritance. So I'm going to read it here. Um, so it's again, Deuteronomy 32, seven through 10. Um, it starts with this. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High, that's El Elyon, divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, that's humanity, and he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. Um, I'm going to stop there. So, um, Right there, you, you kind of, if again, if you just read that and you, and you ask what's going on here, if Yahweh was the source God, the creator of the universe, who is higher than him that's assigning him a people group, right? Um, common sense would have to prevail there and you would have to say, okay, this Yahweh figure is not the highest order of God here. Um, and then there's another reference of um, a polytheistic existence. Um, we're going to go to Joshua 24. Now, again, just stop me if you want to um, say anything about these. If not, I'm just going to keep rolling. Joshua 24, um, 14 through 16. Again, this is going to be um, what I'm what I'm hoping this is going to do here is just show that there's um, more than one God present. There's more than one deity, powerful one present. And the Israelites, the Hebrews knew this. This was not something they were unaware of. They were highly aware of it. And um, we're going to read this here in Joshua 24. So this is actually a funny thing about this verse is um, most Christians love the um, the the last verse here. Um, however, they skip over the first part, um, and and you'll recognize at the end the last part. But if you understand what what were the what the buildup was, it doesn't have the same pleasant ring to it. Um, so it starts with this. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods 
which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve Yahweh. And if it seems evil to you to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Um, and then the last part is, so the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. So they make their decision. Um, again, Josh was not saying there is no other God, but Yahweh, Josh was not saying all these other gods are fake and they're idols and they're not real. He's, he's simply saying, Hey, it would be a good decision to serve Yahweh because you need to fear him. Um, and then of course, you know, he's kind of rallying up the people and saying, as for me, you know, and this is their leader. So again, we have, we have an interesting, um, coercion thing happening here because what would have happened if people would have said no, right? You have to ask that question. These are people who were, you know, um, liberated from, from Egypt. You know, this is post Exodus. Um, what would have happened if they would have served the other gods? They, I mean, you know, we can imagine what would have happened. Um, so again, it, it reads as Joshua rallying up the people to worship and follow Yahweh um, and not the other gods that he admits of, of, of Egypt and the Amorites. Um, so again, uh, I believe through fear, obligation, and social pressure, the people choose Yahweh, um, at least most of the people. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop there for a second if you want to, um, if you have any thoughts on that or, or anything you want to add at all. Uh, yeah, that's great. I guess, I guess I just want to, just some thoughts that are going through my head is, you know, um, I, I, I wouldn't say that like this, you get too dualistic and they say that like this God was Yahweh was like the worst, like obviously there's a lot of great th- not, things that are not great about him, but that doesn't mean there wasn't some good as well. And so we, we won't just say like, oh, he was actually like the, the devil. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, what, what you're saying is, is great. Um, just so the readers, uh, they might want to know what, what, uh, translation are you reading from? Oh, the new King James. Okay, cool. New King James. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so we have, so we have the people, um, choosing Yahweh. Um, and again, you know, I, I added at the end, at least most of the people, the reason I added that, um, is because where we're going to, we're going to kind of fast forward in time here in the old Testament and come to, um, second Kings around, um, chapter 22, which would be, um, ironically at the time of the reign of the boy King Josiah. Um, this, is where we're going to see, I, I believe, um, good evidence um, of a really hard evidence of a polytheistic Judaism um, and how exactly it was transformed into monotheism. You know, they, they if, if you know anything about King Josiah, um, you know, he's famous for the, the reforms, right, for reforming and tearing down the idols of his, excuse me, of his fathers. Um, so, I'm kind of going to set the scene here, um, and I, I do want to read some of it, but for time's sake and just for the listener's sake, I'm not going to read the whole story. So I'm going to kind of set the scene again. Read this on your own. Don't trust everything I'm saying. Don't you don't have to believe everything I'm saying. You don't have to agree with me by any means. This is um, my interpretation, um, and and I'm just laying out what I believe is evidence for what we see um, today with the faith. So. Um, 
So again, this is uh, 2 Kings like 22, 23 is where you get this story. Um, so Josiah was crowned king at eight years old. Um, so he's a boy king. Um, for reference, his great-grandfather was King Hezekiah, who was another um, reformer. Um, during the time when Josiah took his throne, um, it's, it's very clear in the text that the people worshipped multiple gods. Um, there are... Um, it, it, it's just clear that Yahweh was not the exclusive God of Israel. We see references to temples and shrines dedicated to the goddess Asherah. Um, so the Bible calls them Asherah poles. Um, if you Google what that is, there's their shrines, essentially Asherah, um, is actually a cross-cultural. Paul Wallace lays this out really nicely in the book. He has a whole chapter dedicated to her. She is a, um, cross-cultural, um, deity and in most cultures she is known to be associated with the goddess as the goddess of agriculture and fertility um so she's seen as being a uh, benevolent um god so um we also see um shrines to baal throughout the nation during this time again this is in the text um as well as references to those who worship the sun the moon various constellations, and this is a quote, the whole of the heavenly host or the sky armies. So again, um, just kind of painting a picture to say this isn't a monotheistic religion right now that we're looking at. We're looking at multiple gods, multiple deities, multiple, you know, things being worshipped um, and venerated at this time. Um, so now that we understand that Yahweh was not currently being venerated as the sole God of Israel, um, I just want to kind of lay out what role Josiah and his council, his royal council, play in this. Um, for time's sake, again, I'm, I'm going to summarize, and I'm not going to read all of 2 Kings 22, 23. Um, essentially, during Josiah's reign, um, there was a book, um, a mysterious book, and I have a really good um, little um, reference from an article that I found that talks about this book, but um, I'm going to kind of come to that later, but this book that was found, it was found by, um, Hilkiah, his high priest and Shaphan, his royal scribe. Um, the book is called the book of the law of Yahweh. Um, it was discovered, um, subtly, I guess you can say it, it basically the way it reads is that, um, the high priest and the scribe, um, are in the temple and they unearth this book. Um, and there's some theories about, how that came to be. Um, but they unearth this book, basically the law of Yahweh, they bring it to the King, um, and they read it to him and his response. We don't get to know what the contents of the book are, but based off his response, we can make some assumptions. Um, but his response was to tear his clothes. Um, and he wept bitterly. So whatever was in the book, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasing to him. Um, so after this, um, Josiah instructed members of his royal council, five to be specific. So the two that I mentioned before, Hilkiah and Shapha, um, so his, his high priest and his royal scribe, um, their sons, and there's one other individual. It doesn't say what his role is, but it's, it's safe to assume these five people are, you know, some kind of council of his. Um, he, he assigns them, he tells them, this is what the Bible says um, in the New King James Version. It says, um, Josiah says to them, inquire of Yahweh regarding this book. So he tells them to go inquire of Yahweh. Um, 
according to the narrative, what the men do, how they how they interpret that, what they decide to do to inquire of Yahweh is they go to a prophetess of Yahweh. Um, her name is Hulda, um, and this is this is in the Bible, um, and they inquire of her. Um, which is an interesting move. It kind of makes one wonder why the high priest had to consult a prophetess instead of going directly to Yahweh himself, because that was kind of the role of the high priest at the time. But nevertheless, he consults this high priest, um, or I'm sorry, he consults this prophetess, um, and she prophesied that Yahweh is going to send calamity on the kingdom and all its inhabitants um, due to his, quote, wrath being roused. Um she does say at the end, she says, however, the king will be spared the calamity um, due to him, you know, tearing his clothes and, and weeping bitterly and basically, you know, begging for mercy kind of thing. Um, so we're, we're going to come back to the book of the law of Yahweh at some point. But for flow's sake, we're going to keep going with the narrative. Um, after receiving the news from the prophetess, Josiah uh, proceeds to make a covenant with Yahweh. Um, he makes this covenant to serve only him, and he, he swears and vows to take action on the contents of the book of the law. So whatever was in that book of the law that we don't know for sure, um, there were some actions that needed to take place. Based off his actions, we, we, we kind of can assume what it was. Um, so Josiah began um, what, what I'm what, what reads as these reforms. Um, however, in modern times, we would identify it as an ethnic cleansing. Um, so a summary of how it went down is this Josiah, um, basically had all the sacred shrines, um, dedicated to Asherah torn down, including her temple. Um, he also ordered it to be desecrated. Um, he led an organized destruction of each and every piece of sacred architecture or shrine dedicated to any other God besides Yahweh. Um, the scripture goes to great lengths to let the reader know how thorough he was. Um, because it states that he even tore down the high places that the reforms before him failed to tear down. Um, so he went to great lengths to, to really um, do what was ever in this book. Um, he also publicly executed the priests of the high places and burned men's bones on their altars. Um, so now we have we have murder as well as you know destruction of, of these temples and stuff. Um, an interesting thing that, you know, I've read this before and I never, I never really made this connection, but, um, it says that Josiah also removed the common people's household gods and shrines. Um, so we're, we're kind of, if you, if you just kind of look at this almost like it was a movie here, um, what would that look like if he had to get household gods and shrines out of people's homes, right? I don't want to assume too much, but I, I, we can kind of say it probably wasn't a peaceful seizure of people's property. Um, uh, the Bible also says this, I couldn't find a great, um, uh, definition of what this term meant, but it says that he also quote, put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, um, put away. I don't know what it means, but it doesn't sound friendly. Um, which is, you know, mediums and spiritists. It's, it's ironic because, um, you know, his counsel, um, went to a prophetess for, to consult with Yahweh. Um, so, uh, moving forward. Um, so if we, if we just try to picture this for a moment, it, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't read like a reformation at all. Um, it's a violent ethnic cleansing. Um, and it's a whitewashing really of a rich and diverse culture, um, all in the name of Yahweh. Um, and 
you know, even after all of this loyalty that Josiah showed to Yahweh, in the end, um, if we read at the, the it's, it's 2 Kings um, 23, um, verses 26 through 27, it, it shows that Josiah couldn't satisfy his wrath. And I am going to read it just because I think it is important. Um, so this is um, after everything is done, after the quote unquote reform is is complete here and and he kind of sits back and looks at his work. It says this. Nevertheless, the um, Yahweh did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because all of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And Yahweh said, quote, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel. I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So, um, you know, um, we just we just have a, a situation where it looks like even though Josiah was said it's going to go well for him, um, he, he still really couldn't satisfy that wrath. Um, I'm going to stop there, I guess. And that was a lot. I know that was a lot. If you want to add anything or, or throw anything in there, go for it. Yeah, I guess uh, the question that comes up in my mind is, and I don't really know the answer, is like in the Old Testament, what is Yahweh – saying to the Israelites and them doing it. And what is the Israelites or the king or whoever uh, using that name to then do whatever they want? Uh, or like, uh, it seems like sometimes they're using his name for nationalistic uh, means. Um, and so, I mean, but but really either way, Either way, it's not great. So I think either way, the conclusion is, is it's not good. And so we don't have to uh, put our uh, support in those type of things. Yeah, man. No. And I, and I, um, that's amazing that you brought that up because I think it's, I don't think it's, um, since we brought up like the, the non-dualistic, uh, you know, way of looking at this before, I don't think it's, you know, one or the other, um, you know, because you do have not to go down another rabbit hole here, but you do have, um, again, assuming that these narratives are factually true, they actually happened. Um, you do have situations where Yahweh actually does send calamity, right? We have the plagues mm-hmm. of Egypt, right? Which right. murder and, and all kinds of disease happen. So we, that's not someone speaking on behalf of Yahweh. Again, assuming it's true, that's not someone saying mm-hmm. Yahweh said to kill you. So I'm going to do it. That's, actual you know mm-hmm. something's actually happening here so we have that but i agree with you and there's a this actually is a really good segue into this um this article that i found um it's it's written um it's a recent article um and it actually addresses the, the um the book of the law of yahweh which actually fits right on with what you were saying i'm going to read it here um so this is a quote i'll tell you when the quote is done um for much of the 19th and 20th centuries, it was agreed among among biblical scholars that this book of the law was an early version of the book of Deuteronomy. But recent biblical scholarship sees it as a largely legendary na- narrative about one of the earliest stages of the creation of the Deuteronomistic work. That is, historical critical biblical scholars generally believe that the book of the law, an early predecessor of the Torah, was invented by Josiah's priests who were driven by ideological interest to centralize power under Josiah in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, 
William G. Deaver, for example, argues that the Book of the Law was actually composed by Orthodox Yahwist priests who attributed it to the legendary figure of Moses and then hid it in the temple where it would be dramatically discovered in this way a quote, miraculous new word from Yahweh would seem to have appeared, um, end quote. So that's the end of the article. Uh, again, I do think this is that part of the story is absolutely um, a centralization of power, right? So it's it's where we're at, we're getting a um, monotheistic religion, but we're also getting a monarchy at the same time. We're getting a centralization of power in the, the Jerusalem temple. So all the, what does that mean? That means that all the offering is going to go there. It means that all the, everything is going to go there, all the power, but also all the actual resources are going to go to Jerusalem. No other gods are going to be served. That means we get all the sacrifices and the, the first fruits and all that stuff. So um, yeah, so totally, I think, I think it's, it, it, it totally fits, and I don't think it has to be one or the other. So really, really um, glad you brought that up. Um, so I think now that now that hopefully we, we painted a, a decent picture of um, how and why this ethnic cleansing benefits both, both Yahweh, the powerful one, and those at the top of the political and religious hierarchy, um, we're going to dive into the real meat of this, which is... Um, kind of painting a picture of the nature of Yahweh himself um, as revealed by those who worshiped him. Um, so this is where we're going to get into a lot of the passages. So just bear with me. Um, stop me at any time. If you want me, if you want to, you know, throw some commentary sure. in there after, you know, a passage, some of them are going to be lengthy. Um, and, and again, read this for yourself and, and go back. And, and if, if you see it differently, then, then great. Um, this is, this is what it says. And I'm going to give my, you know, what I believe is, is a, um, a fair opinion of this. So Deuteronomy 28, um, is going to be our first chapter we look at. I, I have to unfortunately read most of it. Um, and what we're going to see here, um, is what I, what I'm identifying is a pattern of a conditional blessing followed up by a curse, a conditional curse. Um, so basically, um, you know, I, I was, you know, um, grew up in a, in a more charismatic kind of Pentecostal, um, environment where we would love to quote the, um, quote and believe that the blessings were for us, right? So you're going to be blessed in your coming and your going and, you know, all this stuff, but we, we, we failed to, you know, um, talk about the ending of these, these blessings, which are pretty, um, pretty intense. So Deuteronomy 28, um, I, I'm, I'm going to try not to have to read the whole thing here. I'm going to skip around, but I'm going to try to paint a picture, a fair picture, a truthful picture of the gist of what this has to say. So, um, it's in the new King James again. Um, the, the heading is blessings on obedience. Um, so, this is how it starts. Quote, now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of Yahweh to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord God Yahweh will set you high above all the nations of the earth and that all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of Yahweh. So so basically, if you obey me, you know, you're placed high above all the nations of the earth. You're, you know, that's pretty obvious what that means. Um and, and it's basically, hey, listen, if you do what I say, here's what you're going to get. Um, you're going to be blessed in the city. You're going to be blessed in the country. Um, 
it's, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of skip a lot of this. A lot of this is, is redundant. Um, you're going to be blessed in your coming and you're going, um, Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. Um, Yahweh will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of Yahweh, your God and walk in his ways, um, then all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of Yahweh and they shall be afraid of you. Um, and, and, and then he goes into, you know, he's going to open up the heavens and grain and rain and all this, you know, just all this prosperity, right? Okay. We're going to, we're going to, we understand that the blessing here is, is conditional on obedience. Um, if you go to verse 15, um, the, the heading changes and it says curses on disobedience. Um, so I am going to get into some of this cause some of it's pretty intense. Um, it says this, but it shall come to pass if you do not do not obey the voice of Yahweh to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you'll be in the city. Cursed you'll be in the country. Cursed will be um, the fruit of your body and the produce of your land. Um, cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed you'll be when you go out. Um, Yahweh will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to. Um, Yahweh will make the plague cling to you until you, he has consumed you from the land. Um, I'm going to skip around here a little bit. Some of, some of it's pretty, pretty intense. Um, let's see. Yeah, let's go to verse 25. Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Um, verse 28. Uh, Yahweh will strike you with madness and blindness, confusion of heart. Um Let's see. Verse 30. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but shall not gather its grapes. Um, verse 32. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long. Um, let's see. Verse 35, Yahweh will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils, which cannot be healed. And from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, Yahweh will bring you and the king whom you, whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. Um, let's see. Okay, we're going to go to verse... 45 here. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh. Um, they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever um, because you did not serve Yahweh with joy and gladness in your heart. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies. Um, let's see. Um, they shall eat the increase. This is talking about their enemies. They shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. Um, we're going to skip to 52 here. This is where it gets a little bit more intense too. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust um, come down throughout all of your land and they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all of your land, which the, which the Lord God has given to you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom Yahweh has given to you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. Um, 
55. Um, oh, actually, we're going to skip that. Um, 56. The tender and the delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity will refuse to her husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter, her placenta, which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears for, she will eat them secretly for lack of any, everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. Um, I'm going to stop there. It, it basically, I think, I think, I think we get it. Um, and I know that was a lot. However, um, I think it's important to, to say that yes, Maybe these words did not come out of the sky or from Yahweh himself. However, this is Moses saying this on behalf of Yahweh. And hmm. um, whether you believe that or not, Moses is the only person who was allowed to have contact with Yahweh. He would go into the tent of meeting and no one else could speak to Yahweh. So you either have to believe that Moses made all this up as a means to control and to whatever, or Yahweh said this and they you know, that's just what it is. So I'm going to stop there if you want to say anything about all that. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm just thinking about, um, you know, more traditional Christians or um, what they might say about the Old Testament and the Israelites. And I mean, I think there is some points to this as far as Israelites actually advancing morality and ways of of living and behaving um so for example like uh the child sacrifice um and israelites stopped doing that um or uh how to treat um captured um people from other nations and um so uh christians say hey isn't that showing that like God was with the Israelites and that they were acting better than other nations? How, what what kind of response would you have for that? Yeah. And I think, I think at face value, I mean, I would have said the same thing at one point I would have argued and said that the, you know, the, um, the 10 commandments was what, um, the Israelites needed at that time. So they could, you know, just, just progress as a, as a civilization. Right. However, mm-hmm. um, you know, even the child sacrifice thing. Um, so they, it's true. It is true that they were told to not sacrifice their own children. However, we are going to read a passage where <laughs> Yahweh or Moses calls for 72 virgins to be sacrificed. Um, there's, there's, you know, they, they, they may have stopped killing their own, but I think all this did was, was preserve. Again, if we remember that Yahweh was given Israel as his portion, and he speaks many times. We're going to read that Yahweh identifies himself as a jealous God. Um, mm. And again, you can, you can do spiritual gymnastics on this and say, you know, well, that's just because he's so loving. No, jealous is jealous. Jealous is never good. Um, and, and maybe it's a poor use of, of language there. Maybe it's a poor translation. But what we see behaviorally is him being a jealous God. And mm. we see him co-signing and not just co-signing, but um, ordering the slaughter of other nations and the taking and colonizing of land that belongs to other nations. Um, yes, he's preserving his own, but I just think that makes it more of a nationalistic thing than, a, than mm-hmm. necessarily they're progressing as a nation. And um, 
or they're progressing as a civilization. I think they are progressing, but at the same time, at what, at whose expense, right? At whose expense? Mm-hmm. Everyone else, everyone else become, they, they, they become a nation of conquest. Um, so, um, does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so we're going to look at a really, um, short passage here. Um, it's in Exodus 15. Um, it's just one verse. It's verse three. Um, the scene here is the Israelites are Hebrews are crossing over the, the Red Sea. They've already crossed over the Red Sea after leaving um, Egypt. And it's a passage. It's a verse from the Song of Miriam, which is like this you know, song of victory, basically, after they, they've, they've made it through the Red Sea and have triumphed. Um, it's the only reason I threw this in here, because I do believe it is an interesting take on at least what Miriam's perspective of Yahweh was. And then I think Yahweh follows this up by actually being this. So it just says, um, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Um, again, if, if you're reading this in the Bible, it's going to say the Lord. Um, and, and my disclaimer from the beginning was that I'm going to use the name Yahweh because that is the name of this deity that is in here. That if, again, if you do your, your, your research on this and you look at what the word is, it's the, it's Y H W H it's Yahweh. Um, so Yahweh is a man of war, um, which I think we, we do see. And I think that's kind of what we just talked about a little bit that, that, yeah, he may be um, protecting his own. I mean, if we look at the Exodus, you know, we can, we can cheer that the Israelites were freed from slavery, right? And that is a good thing. No one, I, I would never say slavery is, is a good thing and, and no one should be enslaved. However, we cheer um, for these plagues, we cheer for the firstborn of every Egyptian being slaughtered and killed, right? We cheer for people dying and, you know, that doesn't, it, it, one wrong doesn't, doesn't justify it, right? Like two wrongs don't make a right kind of thing here. And, um, again, I think whether you take this literally or, or, um, as a myth, there's something off here. So, um, we're going to look at Leviticus um, 26. Um, it's very, very similar um, to the Deuteronomy 28 um, passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to drop a few verses here. But um, the the Leviticus 26, the title of the um, the heading at the top of this says "Promise of Blessing and Retribution." Um, so in the beginning, basically. Um, what we see again, I don't, I really don't want to have to read the whole thing here because it is a lot. Um, and I know it, I know it can be, um, you know, I can, I know it can be a lot for people, but basically we have Yahweh saying, you know, if you, if you walk carefully before me, if you walk in my statutes, if you keep my commandments, um, you know, if you, if you keep the Sabbath and revere my sanctuary, you know, um, you know, you're going to have bread and you're going to have, um, safety and all this stuff. You're going to have place to lie down. I'm, I'm really paraphrasing here. You can read it. Um, you're going to chase your enemies and they're going to fall by the sword before you again. Yahweh is a man of war. Um, um, we're going to skip to, so verse 13 is, is where, um, the blessing ends. So very similarly to Deuteronomy 28, we have, we have, um, a promise of a blessing. If they obey verse 14 is where the warning comes in. Um, and that's kind of what I want to highlight here. Um, it says this, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, um, and you break my covenant, 
I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. Um, you shall sow seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you. You'll, you'll be defeated by your enemies. Um, it, it keeps going. Um, essentially, it's, it's really not much different. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's not much different than Deuteronomy 28. Um, the real highlights is when, he's, when it starts talking about um, you know, them having to they're, they're going to eat their own children, essentially. Um, that's, you know, eat the fruit of your your, your own flesh. Um, so pretty sick stuff. Um, but again, we're, we're kind of seeing this, um, you know, conditional blessing if you follow what I'm saying. But here's the curse if you don't. Um, we're going to look at Exodus 34, 14. It's a real quick one. Um, I mentioned before that Yahweh identified himself as a jealous God. Um, Exodus 34, 14 in the new King James says this for you shall worship no other God for Yahweh who, for Yahweh, whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Um, it's new King James. I'm not making this up. Um, so, I mean, you know, again, I, 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 you know, I said this in the beginning, if without feeling like we have to make excuses, I'm, I'm all for, you know, if there's a different perspective of this, then go for it. But without feeling like we have to make excuses for why, why would God say he's jealous? You know, um, well, the behavior does come off as jealous, right? So we're, we're just, <laughs> we're going to take him at his word here, you know, um, anything you want to add in here while I'm pulling up the next thing? No. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay, cool. Um, so, and just so, and, and here's another, here's an argument I've, I've heard before kind of against this. And I understand this is, you know, I, I want to say, and in, in, I guess I'm in the middle of this already, but I want to say like this, when I discovered this for myself, it, it, it rocked my, my worldview, um, big time. I mean, it shattered my worldview big time. Um, I, I didn't want to believe it and I didn't want to see it. And I tried every, um, way I, I knew how to, um, you know, justify or rationalize what I was seeing. And, you know, after sitting with it and, and physically meditating on this and, um, really even praying about it, um, you know, it, it I needed that worldview shattered, um, and mm-hmm. a greater one emerged. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say I'm sympathetic to anybody who, who is, triggered by this or, or thinks that I'm making assumptions or that I'm being, um, maybe careless or reckless in my, in my language or use of these passages. Um, I apologize for that. Um, but again, you know, this is where, this is where, you know, if we don't have these conversations, we may never come to the truth. So, um, I'm all for, you know, anybody who who disagrees with this, but, as I have heard an argument that maybe this is because all the verses I've used so far were mostly um, attributed to Moses. Um, so we could we could say, you know, um, well, maybe Moses, maybe Moses is the bad guy here. Maybe there's a bias there. Maybe there's some whatever. Um, so there, there's a couple other places. I want to go to Hosea 13. Um, this is a real interesting one. Um and it is unfortunately going to be most of the passage I have to read here. So um, Hosea, the prophet, um, he's speaking on behalf of Yahweh here. Again, this is this is we don't have Yahweh didn't write the Old Testament. So I don't you know, I don't I don't have his actual writing here, but we do have behavior. Um, 
So Yahweh is basically um, speaks of exacting judgment on Israel for turning to other um, gods or powerful ones. So the the heading for um, chapter 13 here in Hosea is relentless judgment on Israel. Um, So I'm going to start at verse one. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Um, now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. Uh, they say of them, let the, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff um, blown off the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled, um, they were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Um, O Israel, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Um, I think I'm going to stop there. That's probably a good place to stop. Yeah. So, um, you know, I know that was a lot too, but basically, you know, it, it, it reads as if, um, not as if it reads that Israel has turned to other gods, they're sacrificing and worshiping Baal. Um, you know, again, Yahweh is a jealous God. Um, he's not happy about this. And he reminds them that, Hey, listen, I, I took care of you. I freed you from Egypt. I took care of you in the wilderness. Um, you're not going to have any other gods besides me. And there is no savior besides me. It was interesting language. Um, Hmm. and then, you know, the part about being like a lying, tearing open their rib cage, um, being a wild beast, they're destroyed. Where is your help? You know, this is, this is, and again, this is the prophet Hosea who is supposed to be speaking for, Yahweh. So we're either going to say Hosea is, is corrupt and, and doing something, you know, and speaking whatever violence on behalf of Yahweh and just making this up, or this is what he really heard. I don't know, you know, um, but this is what we see here. Yahweh being as a, as a lion and a wild beast. Um, Amos five is where we're going next. Amos five, 16 through 20. So, um, interestingly, um, this passage, we're going to see Yahweh explaining, well, Yahweh, well, Amos on behalf of Yahweh, explaining what the, quote, day of Yahweh looks like. Um, there will be, there's going to be familiar imagery um, to the Hosea verse that we just read. Familiar imagery as far as the, um, the violent stuff. So um, starting at verse 16, it's called the day of Yahweh. Therefore, the Lord of hosts, um, Yahweh, says this. There shall be wailing in all the streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing in all the vineyards. There shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says Yahweh. Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh, for what good is the day of Yahweh to you? 
it will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light? It is, is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Again, these are two different books of the Bible, and there's imagery and talk of a lion and a bear and the day of Yahweh being like a lion and a bear. I don't, I don't think I need to say a lot about that. I think it's just kind of painting that picture of what we're, what we're seeing here. Um, so to me, this is what, this is what the Yahweh stuff looks like. Um, and I think it's important to understand it this way. Um, so Yahweh goes after the Hebrew people in their vulnerability and their neediness. They're in Egypt. That's where we see, you know, him appear to Moses in the burning bush. He identifies himself. Um, he rescues them from Egypt. Um, but they're in this state of vulnerability. Um, and as soon as he gets them into this wilderness, um, I, it, it, what to me is what it looks like. It looks like fear-based leading. Um, there's a withholding of food. There's a withholding of water. You know, we have manna that only lasts for one day. Um, when his power or decisions are challenged, even in the slightest, um, there's a, there's a verse we're going to talk about later when we talk about how Jesus really opposes this. Um, he sends Yahweh sends poisonous snakes when they complain about food. Um, so to me, these are attributes of an insecure controlling leader. Um, someone who's more bloodthirsty and desperate to make a name for himself, not a benevolent creator who loves his creation unconditionally. Um, so is there anything you want to add to that? Cause that is probably, this is probably where I'm going to transition and look at Jesus and how we see Jesus, um, you know, I guess oppose these, these, yeah, you know, Yahweh stories. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Good. Okay, cool. Um, so now that we've set the scene for Yahweh, um, let's look at how, how Jesus complete, completely contradicts the behavior of Yahweh in really the most subtle ways. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, they're not going to be, um, they're, they're going to be obvious to the Jewish audience that he was talking to for us, for the modern listener and reader, we have to do a little bit more. Um, digging, we kind of have to put ourselves in the place of the Jewish audience and understand their perspective. So, with that said, um, you know, Kendall, you brought it up in the beginning about when the the um, you've heard it said, but I say this, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of that. Jesus did that a lot, and I love that, and that's some of the best stuff. And um, truly, he it, it 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 reads as if he's raising the standard, right? He's actually, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, you know, if you even look at a woman with this way, you've committed adultery in your heart. So right. he's right. not he's not lowering the standard by any means. He's actually raising the bar. There's a really interesting um, kind of obscure. Um, you've heard it said, but I say um, and it's in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. I'm going to read it um, quickly. Um, Jesus says this again. You have heard it said um, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths. To the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Interesting. So, 
Um, so clearly, without even any interpretation here, Jesus is saying, don't swear. Don't take an oath. Don't swear. Not even by God. Not good, right? Um, I'm going to quickly read Deuteronomy um, 6, 13 through 15. Um, so this is... All right, here we go. Fear Yahweh your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of other peoples around you, for Yahweh your God is among you. He is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. First, first verse 13 is, <clears throat> excuse me, is really where I want to focus. Take your oaths in his name. So here we have, um, again, it's either Moses or speaking on behalf of Yahweh, but we have, again, assuming this is Yahweh speaking for himself and telling Moses this, um, we have an order to take oaths in the name of Yahweh here, where Jesus said, hey, you've heard it said this, but I've said this. Um, Deuteronomy 10.20 says the same thing. It says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast, take oaths in his name. Um, so clearly Jesus isn't messing around. He goes right for the jugular and says they would have known this. Again, the Jewish audience would have known this. They would have been ritualistically taking oaths in Yahweh's name because they were told to. They were raised in this religion. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, you've heard it said in the days of old, do this. I'm telling you, any oath you take, anything more than yes, your yes be yes, your no be no, is from the evil one. I mean, that's, you know, what is he saying mm. about who this order came from, right? Um, and you know, also it's really important to note that clearly Jesus is placing himself as an authority, um, that, that as he's willing to place himself as an authority above these, these laws that the Pharisees and these Jews who were raised in this, um, would have really venerated these laws. He's placing himself in as, as an authority above it. Um, so one of the one of the things we didn't get to before, but that was um, it was going to be one of the things we were going to get to, but we can actually get to it now, is um, the story of Yahweh sending fiery serpents to bite and kill the Israelites in the desert after they asked for food. So the I won't read the whole thing, but basically, um, what happened was is that. Um, the, the Israelites were in the desert wandering around for 40 years, and at a certain point, they were given manna. Manna literally means I don't know what it is or we don't know what it is, um, <laughs> but it would only last It would only last one day. So it would, it would spoil. Basically, you could only take what you needed. So here we have limited resources, um, and they had to get their water from a rock. Um, so they were complaining, and, and they, they grumbled and basically said, hey, like, you know, can we have real food? Um, Let's go to, so that's, that's the story um, that we were going to get to earlier. Um, and this is kind of setting us up for Luke 11, where Jesus, this is a pretty well-known um, passage. So Luke 11, 9 through 13, this is Jesus talking. He says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son acts for bread from any father among you, would you give him a stone? Or if he acts for a fish, will he, <laughs> will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he acts for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father um, give, give good gifts to those who ask him? So um, again, I wow. think it's pretty <laughs> damn clear that Jesus. So again, the Hebrews would know this story. 
I want to make this like so clear that we are, we as, you know, a modern audience, we, yeah, we're familiar with this maybe if we heard it in church. But the, the, the Jewish audience would have known this story because the, the, the story in the, in the Old Testament follows up with the only way to be healed of these serpents that Yahweh sends to them is Moses had to fashion this bronze serpent and they had to bow down and worship it. They had to worship a serpent in the desert. Um, none of this makes sense. None of this makes any sense to us logically if we just think about it. But Jesus is saying, what kind of father would do that? He says, not your heavenly father, not the real father, mm. not the father that I'm revealing and that I know. He wouldn't give you a serpent if you ask for uh, whatever food, a fish. Um, so, again, um, I think Jesus is clearly bringing this story to the memory of his Jewish audience. And while revealing the evil nature of Yahweh, I believe um, he is simultaneously revealing the benevolent nature of the true father that he uh, incarnated to reveal. Um, yeah, it's powerful. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my, that's one of my favorites um, because it's just so, it's just so obvious, right? It's so blatant. Mm-hmm. Like when we don't have to do a lot of, you know, interpretation and, you know, just jumping around, it's just really obvious. Um, so the third point um, with, with, as far as like, how did Jesus kind of oppose this? Um, Jesus reveals that his personal experience with the father is something new to the Jewish audience. So <clears throat> how he does this, I, 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 I believe it's this way. It's important to note that his disciple um, and those who his disciples and those who listened to his teachings, they were schooled from birth on the Torah. Um, that's the Yahweh stories, right? So they were schooled from birth. So they they were not ignorant of you know not now in, in you know twenty twenty four you know religion is at probably at an all time low and and most people don't know these stories. But that wasn't the case back then. Everybody knew these stories. And they, so they weren't, they weren't ignorant and they believed that this was their father. They believed that the stories of the old Testament, this is their heavenly father. This is God. Um, I'm saying that to say this. Um, however, they didn't recognize the true father, the cosmic father when it was fully incarnated in Jesus. So we see Philip, um, asking, I actually didn't write this verse down, so I don't know where it is, but, um, Philip, if you just Google where Philip says, um, show us the father. Um, so Philip approaches Jesus essentially. And, um, he, he asks Jesus, he says, Jesus, show us this father that you're talking about. And, And Jesus responds to him and says, Philip, haven't you been with me long enough? You don't know if you've seen me, you have seen the father. Right. And I love that because who, I mean, most people can can are comfortable with Jesus. Even even the most like aggressive atheist, you know, would say, "Hey, Jesus probably didn't do much wrong. Like he, he's a pretty good dude, right? Even if you don't believe he's God, you don't believe any, you know any of these narratives. You can't say much bad about Jesus. Um, kindness, love, forgiveness, acceptance, inclusion, all this stuff. Um, so Jesus is saying, if you look at me, that's what the Father looks like." which is blowing Philip's mind probably because that's not what the father that he, you know, was taught about in, in Torah looks like. So, um, that is point three. Um, so (laughs) this is a, this is another interesting one. So this is going to be in John eight. Um, I don't have this one pulled up. However, um, I don't know if I need to quote it, but I think, well, maybe we will. Um, so Jesus clearly thinks, um, that the father served by the devout Yahwist followers. Um, so the Pharisees, Jesus 
in this in the in this John chapter eight, it, it shows that Jesus thinks that um, their father that they follow is is the devil. Um, so we're gonna we are gonna actually go there. Um, let me just pull that up quick. Okay, so yeah, so we're in John chapter eight here. Um, I'm going to start around thirty-seven. Um, so this is Jesus talking to a, the the audience um, would have been the Pharisees here. Um, so he basically says that I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do not know what you have seen with your father. Um, and they answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Um, so they're, they're, they're basically, I'm going to stop there for a second. They're basically saying, Hey, listen, I don't know who's who, what father you're talking about, Jesus, but Abraham is our father. Right. Um, okay. We're going to skip here. Um, okay. We're going to skip to 54 verse 54 of John chapter eight. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. So you're saying, he's saying, you say that we have the same father. Okay. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say, I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Um, and then, and then Jesus says, you know, it's the famous line where he says, you know, before Abraham was, I am. Um, and basically what I'm, what I'm seeing here. And I think what it puts out pretty clearly is that, um, Jesus is telling them, you, you don't know all this religious education, all of this, this indoctrination that you've received, you don't recognize me. Therefore you don't know the father that I'm talking about. So, you know, assuming, and this is a, this is a big assumption, but assuming that we believe that Jesus did reveal the true father, which I do believe, um, he's telling them, Hey, you don't, you don't know the one I'm talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's a, there's another verse in there where he says, um, you know, you are of your, your father, the devil. Um, that's in verse, um, 44 through 45. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Um, and he was a murderer from the beginning and there's no truth in him because he's the father of lies. That's just a little paraphrase, but basically, you know, Whatever father Jesus is referring to, um, and I would argue it's Yahweh, because um, that is who they're serving at this point. Judaism was a monotheistic religion at this point, and they worship Yahweh. Um, he's he's identifying their father as the devil um, and the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But that is, I, I believe that is what he's saying. Um, there's another interesting verse um, that is... A little bit more. Um, I think it's. I think it's looked over often when we when we think about this story. Um, but it's John seventeen six. So it's you know Jesus's like final prayer that during that time frame, um, and it's a short one. It just says that he says I have revealed. He's taught. He's praying to you know his heavenly Father. He says I have revealed your name to them, and he's talking about his disciples. So you know you have to ask the question. Um, did Jesus ever verbally reveal the name of God? Did he ever say God's name? No. Um, you know, the answer is no. Um, however, his actions, his behavior and his denouncing of what God and the father wasn't, um, 
is enough to reveal the name. So it's this very esoteric approach like he gave um, Philip. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to play this game with you where, you know, I, I need to tell you his name exactly. And I think that's because it, there is no name. I think, you know, it's the unnameable. Um, but same thing when he prays, he says, I revealed your name to them. OK, Jesus, did you, you know, esoterically? Yeah. Behaviorally, you know, I did, you know. Um, so, again, I think I think if we're just looking at the life of Jesus, at the actions, behaviors of Jesus, they're completely um, contradictory to what we see in the old Testament. Um, and again, you know, is that because of people or is that because of this Yahweh figure? And I would say it's both. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. I think humanity gets it wrong, um, and misinterprets and, and makes assumptions and, you know, all this stuff. But I think there was also an influence from this character. Um, um, there is, I'm not going to go super deep into this story. Um, if, if you want to read it yourself, it's second Kings, um, second Kings, I believe chapter one, I could be wrong. If you Google the story of, um, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, um, uh, calling down fire on the, um, soldiers, the armies of, um, who was it? The, I believe it was the Amorites. Um, let's see. Yeah, it was the Amorites. So if, if you, I'm sorry, um, Ekron, the King of Ekron. Um, if you, if you just Google Elijah calling down fire, it'll, it'll be that it's somewhere in first Kings. Um, but long story short, what happens is, um, we see the King of Judah. Um, Ahaziah is his name. He inquires, um, of the God of Ekron um, after he sustained an injury. So this king, he falls out of, it says lattice. So he has some kind of fall. He gets injured um, and he's laid up in this bed. He sends people to inquire of the God of Ekron is what the Bible says. Um, uh, because of this, Yahweh's angry, jealous, right? And he says to, um, it, he says to Elijah, well, he says to the king through Elijah, um, is there no God? Is there no powerful one here for to for you to inquire of? Um, so, again, this isn't this is not a denial of the existence of other powerful ones. Simply that if, you know, if King Ahaziah knew what was good for him, he would have inquired of Yahweh. He wouldn't have gone to Ekron. Um, so um, Yahweh declares that the king won't recover from his injury and that he's going to die in his sickbed. Um then what's interesting, this is where we're going to kind of, we're going to tie this into Jesus, which is really cool. Um, so we see the, um, the king sends these troops. Um, he sends 50 soldiers with one captain to go to the prophet Elijah now to, so Elijah can inquire of Yahweh and try to, I guess, you know, plead for mercy on the king's behalf. Um, the first troop goes to Elijah, approaches him. And Elijah and they and they summon him to come to the king and Elijah calls down fire. He says it, you know, they, they say, man of God, you know, come and, and come to the king, you know, something like that. And Elijah says, oh, if I really am a man of God, then let fire fall from heaven and consume you. And the story goes that fire fell, fell from heaven and consumed the 50, <clears throat> excuse me, the 50 and then the one, the 50 soldiers and the one captain. They do this a second time. 50 plus one come back again. Same scenario, fire consumes them. So we have 102 men. Um, you know, again, if we're taking this narrative um, literally, we have 102 men who were consumed by fire 
because the prophet Elijah called down fire from heaven. Um, what's interesting is um, if we go to Luke uh, Luke 9, 51 through 55, I'm going to tie this right into Jesus here. Um, so again, this is another story that the um, let's put ourselves in the in the disciples' shoes here. This is a story they would have known, and they actually admit they know this story. So I'm just going to read it. Um, they're in they're in um, a Samaritan village, and um, basically the scenario is I'm sorry I'm not reading it yet. I'm still setting it up. Um, they're in a Samaritan village, which at the time would have not been a friendly village for Jews to travel to. So Jesus is taking them there, and you know he's doing his ministry and. The Samaritans apparently had rejected Jesus and the disciples. Uh, Verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went. I'm sorry. I lost my place here. And and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him. The Samaritans didn't receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Jesus's response here is amazing. But he turned and rebuked them and said to them, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Um, So, again, the Jews would have known this story and they admit they, hey, do you want us to, you know, they, they assumed that they had the power, one, to call down fire from heaven. And they assumed that this was a just punishment for people rejecting them and rejecting, you know, their guy, their their rabbi. Um, and Jesus says, oh, you don't, he rebuked them, whatever that means exactly. And he tells them, you don't know what spirit you're of. Um, mm. Meaning this is, you know, it's similar language of, you know, this is, this is taking the oath is of the evil one. It, you know, it's, it's not. Maybe it's not going for the jugular, but to me it reads as, hey, this is, we're not doing that thing. And it follows up with, he says, you know, the son of man didn't come into the world to to, to destroy it, but to save it. Um, so anyway, um, I think I think that's probably a good place to stop as far as like the Jesus evidence. Um, anything you want to add? Because I've been talking for a long time here. No, that's really great. Um I'll just add that, you know, Jesus, obviously he transformed our relationship or or our understanding of God, like you said, into this loving, unconditional father. Um, But also that we could all have this personal relationship with him. And that was just, yeah, transformative and uh, reverberated (laughs) the impact into the world um, from then on. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's this, there's actually this really good, um, children's book written by, um, Brad Jerzak called Jesus showed us. Um, I read it to my children occasionally and it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's that right there, you know, to, to just, you know, um, build off of what you just said that, you know, really, you know, I'm, this is why I'm so grateful for these Jesus stories because, you know, if we didn't have these, you know, we would be, again, probably left to our own interpretation of what God is and who is this God and what does he look like? You know, kind of like Philip, show us the father, you know, um, you know, and I and I know I used this in the beginning and I'm going to probably use this verse until the day I die. And it's my it's my my favorite definition of God. And I think this is um, 
again, you know, to, to, to talk about the, the question that we um, kind of open this up with is what is the Old Testament? What are they, what are they stories of? Who are they stories of? Um, and, and is it, is it, are they actually stories of God um, that, you know, and, and to quote Paul, well, really to quote Paul quoting Epimenides, um, he says, you know, by God, I mean that in which we all live and move and have our being source of the cosmos God. Um, you know, I would argue that the Old Testament stories are not stories of source cosmos God. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe um, that, of course, you know, um, God and and that divine spark is ever present, even in those stories. And I think sometimes you might need a fine tooth comb to find that divine spark in those stories, um, but you can and and you will. Um, but again, are these stories of God? And I would say they're 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 more like stories of um, the evolution of human consciousness for sure, and and the evolution of our understanding of God. But I think. I think it does need to be taken a step further to say whoever this Yahweh figure is, whether it is a completely made up archetype that never existed and it only existed in human consciousness, or it was a real figure with a real form. Um, You know, Paul Wallace argues that it, it, it was a real figure with a real form. um, And there was real, um, real violence done by this, this deity, um, whichever side of the coin you fall on there, um, I would say that, that these are Yahweh stories and it's important to, to understand that when we're reading it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think, I think I don't have a whole lot of, um, much to say, much more to say about that. I think that's the, that's the evidence there. Um, if you want to throw anything in there, um, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say that, you know, basically the whole point of this episode is that, we don't have to say this old Testament God was the God that Jesus talked about. And we don't, uh, I, I no longer have any angst about the old Testament and be like, uh, let me try to make this all fit. And I think when I was younger, I did try to, and it was just so frustrating. And I think it actually made my relationship with God very hard, very up and down. Um, cause I, I, I thought I had to be all these things and ha- and there was this conditional relationship. Um, so I just appreciate you coming on Josiah and um, highlighting all these things um, so that uh, hopefully that'll set some people free as well. Yeah, man. And I, and I appreciate the opportunity and, you know, again, I know I've given a few disclaimers here already, <clears throat> excuse me, but you know, you don't have to take my word for these. Um, again, you know, hopefully I did an honest, sincere job of laying out, you know, the, the facts of what is in the Bible. Um, and, and then explained that these are my interpretations. A lot of these are mine and they're not only mine. You know, I, I don't, I don't claim that these are solely mine. You know, these, these are, um, the interpretations of, um, a fair amount of people now who are diving into these stories, especially with where we stand with the disclosure um, of, of ET contact, you know, here in 2024, right. Um, where we're looking at a time that's, you know, really it's the most disclosure we've ever seen um, at least from the government or publicly. And I think people want to know what's going on. 
And, and, you know, I would say that we've been in contact for millennia, you know, since the beginning, we've been in contact. Um, and some of it's been benevolent and some of it's not. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's, it's obvious when it's not right. Um, and, and it's important to say too, you know, even the, the reforms or the ethnic, you know, cleansing of, of King Josiah, you know, um, it's, I'm not advocating for a polytheistic religion. I want, I want to be, I, I'm not advocating for religion at all, to be clear. Um, I'm advocating for personal, you know, personal gnosis really. Um, but you know, to, to wipe the memory, wipe the, the evidence of, of paleo contact of other, you know, um, deities of other powerful ones to wipe the evidence of our civilizations, um, out like that is just, you know, people need to know the truth and people need an opportunity to make an informed decision. Um, and, and I think that was, taken away that's that's what i see in the old testament that opportunity to make an informed decision was taken away um Mm. and the beauty is that you know when christ comes on the scene when jesus comes on the scene and and is incarnated i believe by the christ um i think (laughs) to me it it especially if you you read the the gnostic gospels i think we see more of a hey the kingdom is inside of you Everything you need is inside of you, you know, and, and, and if someone says, look, the kingdom of heaven is over there and look, the kingdom of heaven is over there. Don't believe them. Right. It, it's, it's actually, it's all inside of you. And I think, you know, what, what I see Jesus and, and others um, advocate for is um, more of a personal thing and more of a personal journey and, and much less of a giving your power and your spiritual sovereignty away to um, really anything. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much all I have to say there. Yeah. Well said. Um, again, during this, this time, I think it's, it's a pivotal message and important, um, that we do have that relationship with God, um, personal relationship, and we can use that to discern what is of God and what is not. Um, and so don't give your power away to external, um, you know, authorities or, or books or whatever. Um, but you use that power within to discern. So yeah, again, thanks Josiah. I really appreciate it. It's a really interesting, fascinating, uh, topic. And, um, it's, it's very important, I think for, for Christians and non-Christians alike to, to hear this thing. So yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. 